0: Hello, and welcome to Witchery, a horror podcast. I'm your hostess, Kara Witcher, coming to you from the Nerd Room Studios, located in my home, which is nestled deep in the hills of the Ozarks. I'm so sorry to be coming to you a day late. I promised my first episode would be launched yesterday, and I was gravely mistaken. Had a few problems with files and whatnot, but we're here today. And hopefully we can get things going. I've decided I'm being too picky and too hard on myself. I am an amateur after all. And I need to give myself room to learn and grow. So please be patient with me as I do so. Just to tell you a little bit about myself. I'm a Gen Xer, lifelong horror fan, collector of the macabre historical artifacts and fraternal order artifacts. I was raised by two lifelong horror fans. Both of my parents were born in the 1930s. So they grew up with some of the really old horror that you see. All that old black and white stuff. And they grew and evolved with the genre through the 60s, 70s, and 80s. It was a fantastic experience for me as a horror fan. I have a deep love for the genre. It's a wonderful medium with many subgenres. It's fantastic storytelling. And it's also just sometimes a good, naughty, bad, fun time. I'm a lover of all types of horror. Almost all. I'm not really into the gore porn as much. That being said, I'm going to be covering a film that is very near and dear to my heart. Hellraiser from 1987. Although Hellraiser is known for its gore and its practical effects, I find it enjoyable on so many other levels. And I'm here to talk to you about that today. Before I get too far into it, I do want to say that As this podcast grows and goes on, I will be doing some reaching out. As I said in my description, I desire to have some relevant conversations about the world of horror. What's going on out there? Who's up and coming? I want to talk to people doing B Productions. In the coming weeks, I will have contact information in the show notes. And we'll talk all about that later. For now... Let's journey in to this absolute masterpiece that is Hellraiser. Hellraiser, for me, is an artistic masterpiece, as it should be. Clive Barker is himself an artist. He calls himself a professional imaginator, and I I just simply love that term. He based this film on a novella that he wrote, the Hellbound Heart. Originally, he wanted the movie to be called Hellbound, but apparently the production company thought that was too scary, and it was called Hellraiser. Clive Barker is much more than just a filmmaker and an author. He's a playwright, a poet, he's a sketch artist, a painter. He is a multi-talented, multi-faceted man. He's also very likable, warm. In his interviews, he gives so much of himself. He's very open. You should go check out some of those on YouTube. They're absolutely fantastic. He has the admiration of many of his peers, which is an honor. I mean, that is an absolute honor to have the admiration of your peers. Phil and Sarah Stokes authors of the memory prophecy and fantasy series like uh, The Revelation. I'm not familiar with those, but they are longtime archivists of Clive Barker's work. In 2016, they launched the Clive Barker Archives. It's full of letters, sketches, paintings, poems, writings, short stories. Clive Barker said that This couple actually knows him better than he knows himself, and he's very, very pleased with the work. So if you're a fan of Clive Barker, please go check out the Clive Barker archives. As I stated, and I do beg pardon for the pause. As I stated, Hellraiser is a artistic masterpiece. From the opening scene, once you get past the iconic, um, new world, new world pictures, icon scrolling across the screen, that red sun streaking across or red world streaking across there. I always thought it was a sun. Um, you knew you were about to enter something special. The score begins. The score is, fills you with a sense of foreboding. You know you're about to dive into a very dark, mysterious story. This goes into the Asian market. You can see the tents, the bargaining going on. You can hear the clanking of chains, change, the animals. And we see a man, a man sitting at a table, and we hear that classic, iconic opening line. Watch your pleasure, Mr. Cotton. Enter Frank Cotton. Frank Cotton has been traveling the world, traveling the Orient, seeking this mysterious puzzle box. We learn that he has had many great pleasures, and he's heard of the lure lure of this puzzle box, and it's lured him in. He sought this box out, made his deal, paid the price, and left the man. But you hear this man who sold Frank the puzzle box say, it's yours. It was always meant to be. That's when you learn that the puzzle box is much more. So we go to a scene of Frank in an empty room. We don't know now what we, we don't know then what we know now, which this is Frank's family home. In that empty room, he surrounded himself in a square of candles and he opens the box and you see that blue light start cascading in through the floor slats in the walls. Then you see the swaying and clanking of chains, the pillar of souls twirling in the middle of them. You see the bits of flesh hanging from hooks and Pinhead emerges. He pieces Frank's face back together like a five-piece toddler puzzle. He resets the puzzle box, and in an instant, they're vanished back to hell, taking their prize with them. <sighs> Frank. Frank fell victim To the lore of the puzzle box. Like so many before him, he wanted to know the great mystery. He wanted to know pleasure. He wanted to know pain. He was drawn in and the puzzle box sucked him in like it did so many others. Now, not all that were taken in by the puzzle box are toxic individuals, but Frank Cotton certainly is a toxic individual. As we move along in the story, we see this house, this house where Frank had met his fate. We hear the door being jiggled and it's Larry. Oh, Larry Cotton, Frank's brother. You see, he's inherited the home and return back to England, which apparently is where his family is originally from. He and Frank are both Americans. Nonetheless, Larry returns and brings his lovely wife with him, who also happens to be English. Now granted, originally the story was set in London and then the production company decided they wanted it to be more American and be set in America. Which they kind of just left it to, it was always just a mystery, is this set in America or London? I view it as being set in London. And they just dubbed the voices. And they, they actually did. Uh, Frank Cotton, the actor, his voice was fully dubbed through the whole film. Uh, which sucks because the actor has a fantastic voice. That being said. We see Larry and his lovely wife, Julia. Julia has her hesitations about the house. She's reluctant. She makes a statement about Brooklyn. You're left to wonder if she was actually happy living there, actually happy returning to her home turf, as Larry reminds her that they are, in fact, on her home turf. They go upstairs to find what looks like a squatter's nest. But Larry sees the Kama Sutra statue laying in the middle of the bed and said, Oh, Frank's been here. Apparently that's a signature mark for him. And Julia's left breathless as the phone rings and Larry leaves her to rummage through Frank's stuff. And so she does. And then we begin... What's a long stretch of memory sequences of Julia's many sexual encounters with Frank. We see her rifling through some pictures that she found in a tin beside Frank's bed. Of course, all pornographic of him dominating some poor woman. One picture, he's looking sultry with a young lady behind him, and she slips that picture in her pocket. As I stated, the phone was ringing, and Larry left dear Julia to answer it. He answers it and enters Ashley Lawrence, a.k.a. Kirsty. Ashley Lawrence is a beautiful woman, I immediately admired her and wanted to be her as a little girl, young, blonde-haired, blue-eyed, brown-faced little girl. She was gorgeous. Now, I don't intend to go through this movie scene by scene. I'm just setting up the story. So, Kirsty tells her dad that she's in the country and she's found a room to which he replies that he thought she was staying there for a couple of days and she liked the house and her response is absolutely priceless well you like my room i love that she assures him that she'll be around in a couple of days when she's found a job he laments and they give their i love yous it's clear that they are very close daughter father pair They get off the phone with each other. Julia sends the stairs and agrees that they shall move in. So they decide to move in Sunday. Sunday comes and Julia is once again upstairs rifling through Frank's things. This fa- scene is absolutely fantastic. Kirsty comes as she promised she would. This is a couple of days later. She starts flirting with one of the movers who's trying to get this mattress up the stairs. Now Julia is off in her own little world living her lustful memories of Frank. 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 Ah, dear toxic Frank. While her very vanilla, very normal, very stable husband tries to get their bed, which they will occupy together, up the stairs mm. <sighs> this scene is so perfectly done i had to take a pause a minute before i started to talk about it we see julia reliving well first let me take this back just a moment Kirsty goes to the kitchen to try to fill up a teapot to make some coffee. Uh, As she does that, she goes to the kitchen, does her thing. Dear old dad is still with the movers, trying to shove that mattress up the stairs, and they're shoving it with this thrusting kind of pounding motion. And this is simultaneously mixed with Julia's, intermersed with Julia's memory of Frank cutting her jumper off of her, taking her to the bed, and thrusting himself inside of her. Which, honestly, guys, you really don't need to thrust that hard. A little finessing goes a long way. My goodness. It's very ferocious. Uh, anyways, and I think that's the whole point. It's it's meant to have that ferocity, like you're meant to be like kind of cringy, sweaty... Rough sex. Anyway, so as they're thrusting the, shoving the mattress up the stairs, you see this nail sticking out. And you're like, oh, injury coming, you know, immediately. So Julia, being thrusted by Frank, they're pushing this mattress back, and uh, this back and forth of memory, mattress, memory, mattress. And the... Infamous ripping of Larry's hand against that nail. And oh boy, is it a rip. Ow, I could feel it. I had to grab my hand. Oh, oh, I'm grabbing my hand as I'm talking about it. So he wanders into his wife, who is in that empty room, just standing there having her naughty time thoughts. And he seeks his wife out for comfort. She looks at it and tells him he'll stitches. As she assures him that he will indeed not throw up or pass out, he has a dreadful fear of blood. His blood pours out onto the floor, and the reanimation sequence of Frank Cotton is ignited. Julia helps for her, or Larry down the stairs. She, Kirsty, finds them. She gets Kirsty to drive them to the hospital or doctor to get dear old Larry, poor stable Larry, all sewn up. Then we come to this great scene laughing, clinking of glasses. Julia and Larry are having a dinner party, they have guests there. Larry's at one end of the table, Julia's at the other. She's off in her own little world. Kirstie is there and she's brought a date. It's that mover she was flirting with. Larry. Ah, dear old Larry. He's telling stories he's having a good time and Julia's not and she excuses herself to go up to bed. (laughs) Of course. She kisses everybody goodnight except for Larry. Larry, she just gives him a sympathetic look of derision, looks down, and walks off. Larry has that moment of doubt look and then goes back to his chatting and having fun with his friends. There is that moment of Julia going up the stairs and she hears the noise. She goes into the empty room. I'm afraid I got a little bit ahead of myself. There is a significant part I did skip over. Frank's reanimation sequence. What an amazing scene that is. It's it's absolutely my favorite. You have the primordial hell ooze on the floor. And you have Frank's reanimating skeleton rising up out of it. You see the spinal cord reweaving itself through the spine. And and you see the rib cage. And you see it all pulling itself up and rising. And the brain reanimating itself. And then the spinal cord just... Like little antennae looking for something to plug itself into and boom click, right into the brain. Right into the brain and it pulls itself up and you see the animation reanimation um continuing and oh you hear that awesome screeching that ah! And it, it's it, it's so great. It's so well done. Uh, Clyde Barker worked with Bob Bob Keane. Uh, He's an amazing guy, amazing team. They were so great at the practical effects. Uh, he worked with him on more of his films. Uh, and he Bob Keane also worked on one of my favorite, my absolute favorite, uh, sci-fi fantasies, Krull. K-R-U-L-L, Krull, absolutely fantastic film, so many great practical effects, you must check it out if you're a lover of 1980s sci-fi fantasy, absolutely brilliant. So, we return to Julia, she enters in that room because she hears a noise, and why when you enter a room when you hear a noise, a horrible screeching. So, (sighs) the slithering, reanimated Frank dragging his not fully put back together legs behind him, this little weak, gooey thing, and he's crying out to her for help. He tells her who he is, and he's like, please, God, help me. And she leaves. She's not really sure what she's going to do. So she goes back to bed with her very vanilla husband. He's dreaming and talking in his sleep. And, oh, she's just so put off. And, of course, she's having more naughty memories. And she remembers telling Frank... I'll, I'll do whatever you want. I'll do anything, whatever you want. Just keep it, you know, I'm assuming she's begging him to stay around and give her more uh, ferocious sex. Anyways, um, that memory pulls her out of bed. She puts on her lily white robe and goes to him and tells him she'll do whatever she needs to do. And boy, howdy, does she. She brings a string of horny men home for Frank to devour. And it's so sad. As I said, Frank is toxic. Yes, he is toxic. But Julia is toxic too. Not only does she crave the toxic, she's willing to feed it, give into it. She wanted it. She wasn't an innocent little thing. She was probably somebody who struggled with her darker side, was trying to find normality, sought it out in Larry, but was lured back into it with Frank. And she went in willingly. Larry is noticing his wife's distance and change. So he has a little dinner with Kirsty and asks Kirsty to go and, you know, talk to dear old stepmomies, try to reach out to her, try to make friends. And Kirsty does. So the next day, Kirsty follows through with that promise and goes to her father and stepmother's house, where she sees her entering the house with a man. And she's like, oh, girl, I caught you. When she enters enters the house, she finds something much more horrific. A half-sucked-out, like a slurpy man coming out of that empty room seeking help from her. And she sees her Uncle Frank. He tries to reassure her, but... How reassuring can a bloody corpse, skinless corpse, be? She gets a hold of the box and runs away. She ends up in the hospital. Frank finally gets his final sacrifice, his brother Larry. Although Julia had, rel- had kept him from devouring Larry... She finally gave in and let him have his way. And Frank was once again rebound with his flesh. In the meantime, Julia had, or not Julia, but Kirstie had managed to, in the hospital where she'd been taken, she'd been found delusional running down the street. She managed to open the puzzle box and call the Cenobites. She tells Pinhead, somehow he didn't know, that Frank had gotten away from him. And she will help them get him back. They make their agreement and she goes. Leaves the hospital and seeks out Frank. These final scenes are amazing. You see the Cenobites really as they are. You see who Frank and Julia really are. Julia is willing to sacrifice her stepdaughter. And Frank is willing to sacrifice his niece. But not before he sacrifices Julia. And she ends up dead on a mattress. That very mattress that Larry had spent so much time shoving up those stairs. (sighs) Toxic people. Cursey lures... Frank back into that empty room where he meets his fate with the Cinnabites and is once again devoured and placed upon those hooks. And before he is finally eviscerated and pulled apart into thousands of pieces, he licks his face and says, Jesus wept. And then, Frank is exploded. The Cenobites, however, are not satisfied and they still want to return Kirsty to hell. But Kirsty, taking the Lamont configuration and putting it back together piece by piece, sends each Cenobite back to hell where they came from. The house begins to slowly, slowly come apart, and as her and her boyfriend, who had inevitably come to save her, Tried to make their escape out the door. The puzzle moves on its own. One piece. And Kirstie knows what happens. One of the Cenobites has come back. As they stand in the door, you see that wonderful, fantastic Cenobite with the stingray-like... Not stingray. uh, What do you call that? Oh my gosh, I'm brain farting. I apologize. But you see that last Cinnabite. and they have this awesome struggle for the for the box. And I'm sure you guys are gonna be really pissed at me. I'm sorry. This is my first attempt. Please be patient with me. Uh but anyways, she gets the puzzle back, puts it back together, boom, that last centipede is gone. The house basically implodes and uh like Carrie style. And you see now this is something I' left out. you see the vagrant that Kirsty and her boyfriend had seen earlier. The strange blue-eyed vagrant. He comes emerging out from the grass, walking up. Kirsty had taken this, the uh, puzzle box and dropped it into the fire of the last remaining bits of the house. The vagrant comes out, he stands before the fire, becomes consumed by it, picks up the uh, puzzle box, and as he stands there burning with the puzzle box, he emerges as this big bone horn, bone dragon, and flies off screeching with the puzzle box, and you pan back down, and it's, you're It's just, the ending scene is fantastic. The way it's done, you close out on the puzzle box. Absolutely brilliant. Um, You can see the imagination put into this. There was a lot of imagining, a lot of in-depth storytelling. Each Cenobite has their own history, their own past story. You get deeper into uh, Pinhead's and number two. Absolutely brilliant. It's just, it's a film that I watch and am pulled in every time. I love one and two. Uh, Bloodlines I do like. Um, some of the other sequels I'm on and off with. But I am still a very deep lover of Clive Barker. And researching this episode i just ended up falling in love with him more to be somebody who is able to be an individual and express yourself and become uh, make a living at doing that is absolutely fantastic but even if you can't make a living at doing it always imagine always express yourself Always create. So, before I close out, I just want to say thank you so much for listening. And thank you so much for your patience. I really hope you will give me a chance and stick with me. I plan to do at least one episode per week. Uh, As I said, the show will grow and evolve. Uh, The next episode, I will have some contact info. Uh, I do plan on sending up uh, an email uh, and a Facebook page, uh, possibly an Instagram. Um, So that will be coming soon. I hope that we can have some relevant conversations. I, I know I use that word a lot, relevant. But it's important. It's key to what I'm trying to do here. I Mm -hmm. Core is a growing genre. And it's always ever-evolving. Anyways, I hope you enjoyed this. And I hope you will join me next time. Until then, stay mysterious, my friends. And always be an individual.